Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Prevented 
from having access unto God. He is cast out. He is set apart from God. And the reason he is is because he has not done something. And that something is he has not believed in Jesus Christ. Man is condemned. He has been condemned from the first sin in the Garden of Eden. We can look at nature and discover that this world is condemned. God said to Adam when he cast him out of the Garden of Eden that he would have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. He's going to have to fight the elements, the earth, in every degree in order to eat out a living. We can attest to that every, every summer when we plant a garden. We fight the weeds continually, don't we? There's nothing easy to grow. The January issue this year of the National Geographic, I think it was the January issue at least, went into a considerable discussion and pictures of the catastrophes around the world. It discussed the floods, the fires of Australia, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, the famines, the droughts throughout the world. You know, we complain a lot here in West Virginia about the, uh, the weather. It's never good. But there's been one thing that I have observed, and I'm sure that you have too, it may not be ideal, but I'll tell you one thing, I have never experienced any of the horrible fires of Australia that burns up whole areas, or even California as far as that's concerned. I have never experienced uh, an earthquake, although we've had a few tremors, as some parts of the world are so subject to. I've known some dry times, but I have never known drought to the degree that it is observed and lived in many parts of the world. I've been hungry a few times, but I've never gone very long without something to eat because of the famines, uh, like the famines that exist in some parts of the world. We're quite fortunate, I believe, in, in many ways to, to not have the tremendous extremes of the uh, elements, nature, about us, the ground may be cursed, and we have to eke out our living from it. And this is the condemnation upon nature, but here we don't seem to experience the extremes that are known throughout the world. But there is another condemnation that is more important for us to consider, and that is the condemnation of one's own conscience. Webster describe, describes conscience as the awareness of something within oneself. All of us have that something. The awareness of something within oneself. 
Now, Webster does not describe what that something is, but I think we in the church and within the scriptures have described it time and time again. One's conscience testifies to his condemnation, to his disobedience with, uh, to God. Man realizes whether he will stop to recognize it or not, or, or outwardly admit it, but he has been condemned of God, and unless he responds to the avenue to relieve that condemnation, he will remain condemned. The man knows this. That's why he is a religious person. There are very few people in this world who do not at least acknowledge that there is a God, a superior being of some nature. It may not be the God that we worship, but man is a religious person, and I believe it's because he has a conscience that there is something within him that tells him that he is condemned, and he is ever striving to get back to that initial state in the Garden of Eden where there was harmony between himself and God. I'm using this in general for man's self and God, as Adam had with God there in the Garden of Eden. Paul tells us in the third chapter of Romans, the 19th verse, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. We're not going to deal with that phrase, but I'm reading the total verse. That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world become guilty before God. Now, all the world does not acknowledge its guilt before God, but it is nevertheless. He says to us in the third chapter and the twenty-third verse, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now, there are people who do not believe that they have sinned, but there are few, and they are misled in their concept. So there is a natural state of condemnation that God has placed upon man by the elements, by nature, but there is an inward condemnation that man can recognize by, because of his own conscience, because he recognizes something that he cannot identify, perhaps, but nevertheless is there, that causes him to believe that he is condemned before God. Now, whether he will act upon that acknowledgement, on that belief, is another subject that we shall not particularly deal with this morning. Now, what is the condition of this alienation? That is the, the response in man toward knowing that he is condemned. Well, for the most part, I believe people attempt to ignore it. If you are alienated with another person, and I'm sure that all of us have at times had some kind of a, an experience with being alienated from someone. If that happens to be a neighbor, that alienation will lead those neighbors to refuse to speak to each other across the garden fence. 
Or if one is going up the street and the neighbor is coming down the street, if it is possible, one of them will cross to the other side in order to avoid a confrontation so that one will not have to look at the other or speak to the other. This, I'm sure, uh, is something that we all perhaps can relate to in some nature or other. This is exactly what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He sinned against God by his own choice, and he ate of the fruit of the garden that had been forbidden for them to eat of, and once he ate of it, he knew that he had sinned and was condemned. And the thing that he attempted to do then was to hide from God. Now this is the expression that many people exercise in their alienation. They know that it has happened. They know that they are condemned. They know they ought to do something about it, and they don't want to do anything about it. And so their efforts are to hide their, themselves from the presence of God and stay out of his way. This is, this is why people don't come to church. Why would you go to a place where the person with whom you are alienated is going to be? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it, if you wanted to avoid a confrontation? If you know there's somebody going to be in a given location with whom you don't want to, to, to be confronted, the logical thing to do is stay away from that place. A person who does not want to be confronted or think about his relationship to God is not going to come to his house where obviously he's going to be confronted in some way or other with this possibility. And so man is estranged from God, and therefore he is condemned. But Paul says that there is no condemnation to a certain group, to a group of people that he calls those that are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk after the natural state of man, this is my translation now, but rather walks after the Spirit. He is free from condemnation. We'll go back to John again. And we'll see some, some verses that are given here in John chapter 5, verse 24, first of all. We have these words from the Lord himself. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What did he say? How do you avoid condemnation? You hear the word and believe on Jesus Christ. That's how. Which I'm assuming that we have done this morning. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, a very familiar verse to us all. But I want to read the verses following as well as the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
we could very easily translate should not come into condemnation. We'll find this here very shortly. And God sent his son into the world. I beg your pardon. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him that is not, let me start again, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now, the state of man who has not accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior is very plainly defined in the 18th verse in the words of our Lord himself when he says, He that has not believed is already condemned. Now, this is not talking about a future time. It's talking about the present. He that does not believe is already condemned. But there is no condemnation to those who believe. I don't know whether you have been following the trial of the six young men who were accused of rape. I suspect most of you have seen some uh, news releases on television of this trial. At the time of the report of the jury, the TV cameras were focused on the accused. Now, I'm not here to state one way or the other about the results of the trial, simply to refer to the reaction of those who were accused, and particularly to refer you, if you saw it, to the reaction of those who were acquitted. You remember two of them were acquitted. And as the cameras were focused on each of them, before the announcement of the foreman of the jury, their face was very tense, very apprehensive, very scared. Because they faced the possibility of being condemned. And they knew it. And as the verdict was read, you could see in their expression, the tremendous relief that came over them when the word not guilty was pronounced. They were acquitted. They were forgiven. They were set free. They were relieved of the burden of condemnation and were declared not condemned. As I must repeat, I'm not judging the validity or, or the lack of validity or the integrity of those who made that judgment. That is beside our point. They were acquitted. It's the same kind of thing that goes through the mind of a person who perhaps has cancer and then the doctor says you have been cured. Or a blind person who has been uh, re restored to sight, similar to the 
man who was born blind and met Jesus and Jesus gave him his sight. He was acquitted. He was no longer condemned to a, a life of blindness, but he was set free. It's like an animal that has been tied or caged for a long period of time. You take a dog and tie him up and then some days later you go out and unsnap his chain and he goes wild with his freedom. Or you let uh, an animal out of the barn that you've kept in there all winter and it will go wild in his excitement of being free and will run and pick up its heels. There is an expression of tremendous relief in the person who has been set free. And this is the attitude that Paul is describing of the person who has not been condemned, because acquitted, if you will, because he has been set free in that he has believed in Jesus Christ. Well, this is the attitude that we can feel, a relief of knowing that we shall never be condemned because we have believed in Christ our Savior. Oftentimes, between the one who sets one free and the one who is set free, there develops a, a close bond. Many people have said to others, I owe you my life because of the, the sacrifice that one has made for another. Many of those people who were liberated from the seeking airplane in the river was in Washington, yes it was, I believe, uh, when the young man jumped into the water and, and swam out in that icy water and helped save a number of individuals off that plane, uh, I think that was a year ago that that happened. Those people literally owe that young man their life. I don't know the, the relationship that developed between any of them, but I'm sure there has been a bond of friendship that has a, been established between some of them that will never be broken because of the, the fellowship they have, the experience they had in that, in that tremendous moment. They become very, very personal with each other. I think that's why we sing the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus because we have developed a relationship with a person who has given his life in order that we might live. How many times have you introduced someone and you have said, this is my best friend? What did you say when you used that phrase? What did you mean? Was it casual? I think not. If you go to the extremes of identifying someone as your best friend, you have said something tremendous. You haven't done it casually. You have used it with careful thought that here is a relationship that we have that is beyond the realm of the normal. This individual is my best friend. Very personal, I think. And I think there's something in that relationship that, that is perhaps deeper even than the relationship of husbands and wives, or even children and, and parents at times. 
a relationship that nothing else can take its place. When two individuals come in contact with each other and develop a bond between them of friendship that would cause one to say of the other, this is my best friend. And this is what we find in Jesus Christ and because we are not condemned to death because he has done something for us to liberate us from it. I think it's a condition also of safety as well as a condition or a state of friendship. Because Jesus Christ has given us security. One of the things we believe as Baptists, we believe in the eternal security of the soul. We believe that once you are saved, you will not be lost. Now, I preached a sermon on that some time back. I think the scripture teaches this without any doubts. But one does not need to wonder if he is saved or not, if a person has accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, he can say in the words of Paul, there is no condemnation to me. Why? Because I have believed in, I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And therefore, we have a condition of safety that allows us to look at every day with the security that there will be no condemnation today as well, and tomorrow, and the day after. We might, as we get up in the morning, some of us probably say, good morning, uh, uh, let me start that one over, I got my words mixed up. Good morning, Lord. Some of us probably say, good Lord, it's morning. And we mean something entirely different. Those who must say, good Lord, it's morning, might be looking at that day through the eyes of those who are condemned, thinking that condemnation may come. But those who get up and say, good morning, Lord, know there is no condemnation today or tomorrow, nor forever. Now, what causes us to be able to take this position? I think we can find three things or four about it that we need to say very quickly. Number one, that Jesus became the substitute. You see, the law of God commanded that for sin one must pay in blood. And this is still the law of God. Sin can only be forgiven through a blood sacrifice. God has never changed that law. The Old Testament, they did it through animals. Then God gave us his son, and his son shed his blood, and it is only through his blood that we can be saved. This is the only way. The wages of sin is death, the scripture tells us, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or he says, by his stripes we are healed. He died to atone for our sin. Jesus became our substitute. One of our missionaries was showing a film on the life of Christ in Africa. And it showed Christ hanging upon the cross. And one of the members of that congregation was so caught up in the episode of the crucifixion of Christ 
that he got up out of his seat without thinking what he was doing and ran down to the screen in front of the congregation and fell down on his knees before the, the Christ on the cross and he cried out aloud, No, Jesus, it is not you that should be hanging there, it is I. But we will either hang there ourselves and pay with our own blood for our sins, or we will allow Jesus to be the substitute. But I think Jesus becomes the ark of safety. God saved the human race from extinction through Noah by providing an ark and placing Noah and his family within it. And it floated upon the torrents of the seas without sinking. It was, in fact, unsinkable. Man built a great ship called the Titanic that was supposed to be unsinkable, but it went down with the many hundreds of lives that were lost. Men are always fighting a war that will end our wars. This was the thoughts about gunpowder when it was discovered and developed, and this would be so horrible that man would never commit another war because it would be too great. And now we're into the atomic wars, and there are those who suggest that because atomic power is so powerful and so destructive that man will not dare to use it. How foolish of us to think that. There is no safety in the devices of man. The ark of safety is in Jesus Christ. And I think we can say that Jesus is the peacemaker. Man is continually trying to gain world peace and it will never come, but man is also trying to find inner peace within himself. If you take an honest look at every person, there is one thing that he wants almost beyond anything else, and that is to be satisfied with himself. The great numbers of non-Christian people in this world are looking hither and yon for satisfaction to something that cannot be found within themselves. This was the experience of the Gadarene demoniac. He was not satisfied with himself and and he was uh, very disturbed until he met Jesus and he became very sane and found inner peace. There is a struggle going on with God that began in the Garden of Eden and the struggle will continue until a person finds peace with God. The sixth verse that we read uh, in our response, well we didn't read in our response reading, I beg your pardon, the sixth verse in the same eighth chapter says this, to be carnally minded, or I might interpret to be worldly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded is peace. But when is this time going to come? When is Jesus going to harmonize this world and let everything live in harmony? We want that in family harmony and in harmony with our neighbors and friends. We want harmony in nature, which there is none now. The day will come when Jesus Christ comes back to reign upon this earth as the King and Lord of this world. He will cause the lion and the lamb to lay down together. He will cause men to be at peace with each other. There will be no more racial and social and cultural and ethnic issues. Man will not rise up against man because he will be in harmony at that time. But until then, man is going to be condemned unless he 
is free from this condemnation in Jesus Christ. We can take satisfaction in knowing that when we believe in Christ, we are not condemned. And on the day of judgment, when we stand before the Lord, and our lives are opened there before him, and the record is shown, he will say to us, no condemnation, for you are free in Christ Jesus. As opposed to those who have not believed him, but he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description. Thank you for listening, and remember to try Trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.